I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend, cause I've heard it all before. And I've been down there on the floor. No one's ever gonna keep me down again, sings Helen Redding. We hear it's illusion to balance in our guest today, Tina Ward Pugh. We totally agree with Helen Redding. It is time that those of us of the male persuasion recognize the strength, power, and intellect women bring to the table. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions of Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Tina Warpoo. Tina is originally from Mississippi. She has earned an undergraduate degree in business administration from Belmont University. She moved to Louisville in 1987 and attended Southern Seminary where she earned her master's in social work and decided to make Louisville her home. As a young social worker and feminist marching for abortion rights, LBGTQ rights, and fair housing while at the Coalition for the Homeless, she first worked to elect women judges and other progressive people to office before running for the first time, successfully winning in 1998. Cheney Ward-Pew was elected to the 1st Ward Arlen, the 9th District Councilwoman, and most recently, the director of the Louisville Metro Office for Women. Tina's long been a progressive voice for human rights. That includes leading the passage of a fairness ordinance twice, leading the smoking ban public health initiative, and helping to create the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Tina Ward-Pugh, welcome to Solutions of Violence. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure and honor to be here with you all today. Okay, so let's get started. We've got a lot to cover. Tina, you have a degree in social work, but you chose to get into public politics early on. You could have been a social worker, work with families, help students in public schools. In 1980, not many women were involved in politics. So why politics? Well, that's a great question. And what I'll say is, as it turns out, I ended up being on the cutting edge of of what's called or described as macro social work practice. We had two tracks when I was at Southern uh, in the Carver School of Social Work. One of them was families, individuals, and groups, and that was more counseling. And the other was program directing, running nonprofits, and advocacy. And so, you know, at that time, they were training us to be social workers in churches, in faith settings, as well as in nonprofits. It was the truth, though, that no one was really taking that social work degree and applying it to public service or at least elective public office. And so after I graduated, going into government, work for the First Ward Alderman, Scotty Green, and then running for office myself was exactly the track that prepared me because in government, it's just like a great big nonprofit. It has all of the services. It has all of the opportunities to create change in communities with government, I believe, is here to serve people and to create community and better communities. And so creating legislation or public policy working with the community services to try and disperse money to our local nonprofits every year from the budget. I mean, all those things were exactly what I was taught. And what's funny now is 25 years later, 
all of a sudden the National Association of Social Workers, for which I've been a member since 1991, they are now pushing social workers to get into the nonprofits that are actually progressive in ways of advocating for human rights in all kinds of ways. And so it's a funny thing. And it's also was sort of a way, it's interesting, I've always thought of, of it kind of as my ministry, even though I'm, I'm not ordained and, and don't plan to be ordained. So yeah, and the other one that everybody will recognize too, as a social worker in politics is Representative, retired now, Representative Jim Wayne. Now he actually is a social worker in family practice or one-on-one counseling and stuff. I'm the opposite, but I'm glad to be in good company with him. Yeah, Jim Wayne has been on our program as well. So, Tina Ward, you began your career in politics by working to elect women to the bench. Why is it important to elect women judges? What do women bring to the judicial branch that men do not? That's a great question. And one that I'm hoping is changing, especially around our country, because I know it is changing, of course, here in Louisville, Jefferson County. So back in the late 80s and early 90s, when I was electing women judges, because really what happened, I, I woke up when I was in seminary. I mean, I've had about four different awakenings. And one of the first ones was seminary, taking feminist theology and realizing, you know, learning history, understanding why women changed their last names when they got married, understanding that who knew growing up in Mississippi that it was a long tradition, of course, you did it because they were your property. And so when I found that out, I just could not believe it. And so I began to work to elect women judges, so anything around women, women's rights, uh, all those things. But I think that what was important for me is, is that women, because society has created these two tracks forever, men are supposed to do these things, women are supposed to do these things. You know, we've created regretfully, and we're changing that. We've re- we've separated that a woman can only do these things and do them well, and a man can only do these things and do them well. And anybody who bucks that, anybody who doesn't fit in, you know, well, they, they must be the ones that are out of sync here or the weird ones. When, in fact, women bring to the bench, and they did started doing this, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, they started bringing that part of them, not just their, you know, not just their nurturing, not just their good listeners. Women tend to be problem solvers. Women tend to be, they would rather have 50% of something than 100% of nothing. And so they were bringing these kinds of differences to the bench that men weren't bringing, typical men, I mean, just traditionally, not everybody, but generally. Yeah, so at time, boys had grown up and been trained to not, not get their feelings hurt and be strong and don't cry. And, you know, real men are this way. And women, girls and women were trained to be the other way. And so along with the women's movement in the 60s and 70s, we changed that. And as a result, young boys were encouraged to have feelings, to defend themselves, but in ways that use their brain and not their brawn. 
And girls were taught that their mind and being smart and uh, an education was just as important as other aspects of their life. And so here we are 30, 40, 50 years later, and we finally are seeing the result of that. Number one, electing women judges here locally, the pendulum is still out there. It'll come back, but there are almost entirely women judges on the bench here and more and more around the country. But I expect that it'll the pendulum will swing back and more men will be elected and you know, and then it probably would, would balance out and be reflective of of our community. But the point is is that thirty years now since started the movement, it's just refreshing. Men carry their babies, tax, you know, they're pushing kids in strollers out in public. They are caring for them. They are feeding them when they're crying and hungry. And that just wasn't the case way back when. And so it's just exciting to see the change in how young folks benefit from, you know, what folks have been, you know, what others have been doing for decades to try and bring about. You have supported progressive politicians. You, Who are your favorites and what was it about their political views that attract your attention? Some of them, I would say, but not, not all of them, but some of them I would say would be Barbara Jordan, Oh my gosh. Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas. Pat Schroeder. Those are women in Congress. I have always admired Shirley Chisholm. And of course, you know, my all-time favorite was Hillary Clinton because I, one of the things on my bucket list is working to elect the first woman president. Back in 07, when she announced she was going to run, she was the first person I thought that really had a shot at winning. And of course, in 2016, when she should have won, we really were going to do it. But there are others. I mean, I'm grateful that Martha Lane Collins, who changed the face of this state when she was governor some in the 80s, bringing the Toyota plant here and some other economic changes that really helped advance our state or provide some new, better, cleaner jobs for for Kentuckians. So those are some of the ones that come to my mind. Those are some of the ones. I'd say that by and large, all of these women were strong women. Barbara Jordan is just one of my favorites of all time. I mean, how could you be a, a Black woman and be elected to Congress in the 60s or 70s? Just was unheard of. But she was so bright and she was just a formidable force of nature that she got a lot of stuff done and she spoke out. She stood her ground. Now, I do want to be clear here. None of these women were perfect, and I don't agree with everything and every perspective that these women have, you know, political issues that they have. But, you know, I'm not supposed to. (laughs) I mean, the totality of, of their service and their time serving the public, I believe, is what's important to look at. And I say that because I can tell you 16 years of public service when I was on the Board of Aldermen and Metro Council, there were plenty of votes that I made that I wasn't happy about because it was only incremental forward progress. And I wanted more. And there were lots of us who wanted more, but it felt more appropriate and collegial 
to bring more conservative colleagues with us on those votes than it was just to cram something down somebody's throat. Because when Hal Heiner and I agreed on something, and he's out in the East End, and he and I disagree on all but maybe six things ever, it was good for Hal and I to be on the same page. It was good for me and Ellen Call to be on the same page like she and Julie did with the smoking ban, because that meant Republicans that she was meeting and engaging with were also, you know, she was saying, I'm for this and this is why. And so it sort of took the sting out of the opposition, the polar opposition, where we find ourselves today. You're you're a Democrat, and if you're different from that, you're not a Democrat and you're a Republican, you gotta believe these things. If not, you know, you're you're off the off the bank here. From time to time you you make a vote because you have more information than the public ever will and you do your best to weigh your options, your competing interests. So I tell people all the time, do you, do you think for one minute that because I didn't vote for something or against something that I didn't have a perspective on it or that I was, if you can feel like you're not doing it for yourself, if you can demonstrate that you care or or share with people and educate people what those competing interests are that got you to a vote, then people can understand. They still may not agree with you, but they can understand what you were thinking and you weren't just doing it, you know, because it's what you wanted to do. These strong women are women that I just admire and support their standing up, you know, when they did all during the last two centuries. You were one of the leaders for the White Brother Fairness Ordinance here in Louisville. The first fairness ordinance was passed by the old Board of Aldermen in January 1999, protecting lesbian, gay, bisexuals, transgender, LBGDQ people from employment discrimination. A broader fairness ordinance that protected the LBG community against discrimination in housing and public accommodations was passed in October 1999. But the Metro Council did not pass a fairness ordinance that included protection against discrimination in housing, employment, and public accommodations until December 2004. Getting a comprehensive fairness ordinance passed in Jefferson County was a long, hard battle. Why did you support the ordinance and what else needs to happen to protect the rights of the LBGDQ community? Well, the short answer is it was my honor 26 days into my very first term to lead the passage of fairness in the old city of Louisville. I didn't do it by myself. I had two other Board of Aldermen members. I had George Unseld and Bill Allison. The three of us were elected that year because for the last 20 years before that, a small group that turned into a big group of community leaders, not just individuals, but community uh, members of the faith community, the business community, were out in the old city of Louisville educating the public about the need for protections and why it was anything but a special right. It was just an equal right. And so, you know, the community was tired of there not being a vote on this. And the community, like 67 or 75 or whatever number, wanted protections for the LGBTQ community. And they wanted it then because we'd waited long enough. And so the community elected George and Bill and I. And that's why 26 days later in our first term, we passed it. 
And that's also why Council President Steve Magre, who had been against it until then, voted for it because folks like Lisa Gunterman, who visited him every week in his office just to keep talking to him about the youth and about the bullying and about the teenage suicide rate over gender issues to where Steve Magre couldn't be against it anymore. He got it. And he also got it because the community he represented began to get it and were pushing for it. And so I think that's also a demonstration of when I talked about earlier, if you bring the community with you, if you bring other older men and women with you or council members with you, you have more people, you have more champions. And So I was honored to be a part of that, but make no mistake, Bill and George and I had the easy job. I helped lobby for and work for and volunteer for fairness for a few years before that, but there were people who've been doing that for 30 years, and they're the ones that really did the legwork and got that done. The Fairness Campaign, Friends of Fairness, Religious Leaders for Fairness, you know, businesses that stepped up to create human resource policies that protected LGBTQ members. I mean, those were the those were the folks that really laid the groundwork to get it done. I guess your question about what else needs to happen, I don't have a good sense of that at the moment, but I guess two things crossed in my mind. The first one is if we're going to continue to have gender specific bathrooms, if we're going to make people choose to go in a, a, a gender female gender bathroom and a male gendered bathroom, if we're going to continue to do that, then we got to have one on the hall that also is for transgender individuals. I'm for figuring out a way to create just unisex restrooms. I'm not sure the public is there yet. And as I said, I don't know enough about it. But what I know is, is that if we're going to keep segregating bathrooms, then we, we need a third bathroom. And we don't need it to be around the corner and around back and out the door and across the street. We need it in the same foyer. We need it in the same area. We need to recognize the importance of people who are in transition or who have transitioned and who deserve who deserve a place to go to the restroom and not be harassed, for God's sake. So I don't know anywhere where that is in conversation, if, if at all. The other thing that crosses my mind is, of course, marriage protection. And of course, everybody thought that that was over and done with. And, you know, what we see happening right now on the national level and with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas laying out a litany of these are the other things that we need to as a Supreme Court to address included revisiting Obergefell. And what that means is, is, well, I think whoever voted for this and and that included Justice, I believe he was a Republican appointee, Kennedy, Justice Kennedy. It rolled off and the the court is radically different now. But I think that if we don't codify Obergefell, if we don't pass legislation federally to protect marriage, it's on the chopping block. If you don't think everything we've worked for for 100 years is on the chopping block, then you have been under a rock and you're not paying attention. This is just the beginning, what we're seeing now, of that happening And it is time for people to wake up and respond to that. If you don't like what's happening, then then you got to find some way to do something to educate people about what's happening, who's in control, who's been in, you know, who's been elected and who's not voting because, you know, my vote doesn't matter and, and get people engaged. Now's the time.
So Tina, you pointed out that you were also one of the leaders that led to the Smoking Ban Health Initiative. The Smoking Ban Health Initiative demonstrates why restaurants in Louisville and Jefferson County are smoke-free. I imagine there was pushback from conservatives who claim a smoking ban was government overreach. Tell us about the smoking ban battle. We've come a long way, baby. And, and we've come a long way, maybe. You know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, 70s, when Virginia Slims came out for women, it was all about trying to hook women on smoking because that meant more profit for the smoking industry. And I get it. It's an industry. It's business. It had stockholders and shareholders. And I get all that. What I didn't appreciate, though, is, is that since then, of course, we have gotten all the memos from all the different tobacco companies that they buried, the memos they buried back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s that said there is some evidence, there is some evidence that this might lead to cancer. And then there's just some evidence about secondhand smoke. Hey, and then the Republican Surgeon General appointed by Republican Ronald Reagan, C. Everett Koop, he's the one that said uh, we're going to start putting this warning on cigarette packages. So this has been going on since the 80s and the 90s. And so people are digging out these old memos because more and more people are, are having lung cancer and breathing and health issues around this who live with smokers. And so what happened was what always happens, and that is the American Cancer Society and, and other nonprofits and organizations and research began to actually demonstrate and identify and prove smoking was detri- could be detrimental to your health. And it certainly was as a secondhand detrimental to others or potentially. And so the truth is, is we knew too much to do nothing. I mean, we knew too much to not do something about that. But as with all change in legislation and in communities, it may have been unthinkable that there would have been seven votes on the Board of Aldermen because there were only 12 members of the Board of Aldermen at that time, that seven members would pass an ordinance banning smoking in public places. But maybe that was out there. But I don't think it would have stayed because the community hadn't bought into it at the time. And so once again, I had on some level, I had, Tom Owen had and others had the easy part voting for the smoking ban. You had Republicans like Julie Rocky Adams on Metro Council and Ellen Call who voted for the smoking ban. And they're the ones that really were catching the flack about this, but they got it. They truly understood it was a public health issue and it was their job as elected leaders in the community to protect the public health. And in the public, they could do that. You know, really none of us cared about what you want to do in your home or in private events and gatherings and stuff to some degree. It was the public's health. And so what we did was one of my social work students, because as a person who has a master's in social work, I'm able to supervise uh, students who are getting their master's in social work. And so I've almost always had a, a student social worker from Uh, the University of Louisville, Kent School, or Spalding University, from Campbellsville University, and from Western Kentucky University. I've had students almost my entire time in public service working in in the office. And so one of the projects, of course, was, okay, how are we going to change the minds of my colleagues on Metro Council who just know, they just know that their people are against the ban. And so what we did was Maria 
Ramirez, my student, who's just a fabulous social worker now teaching, she wanted to do her research project. We decided that she was going to do it, and she was going to come up with an actual survey of every, all 26 districts. And so what we did was she did that. She made her calls. She she asked the questions. She It was a reliable, a valid survey. She compiled the results. She made a report about it, and we brought her in front of the Health Human Services Committee to make her presentation of what she had found. And then we delivered a copy, a binder that was the, you know this thick. I mean, it was at least three or four inches thick. We delivered a binder to all 25 other council members about all the districts, but in particular, we highlighted their district. And it was clear, it was clear as it could be that the public had changed its mind and had moved beyond the threshold of, I, I got to have my cigarettes when I go out drinking or to the bar or dancing, you know, that kind of thing. And so we were able, through an internal conversation, to talk about the importance of, of a smoking ban and it being a public issue. And I think two things. Number one, can't say enough about the Heart and Lung Society and their work that they did. I mean, they were out there and they for a long time. And the second was tying it, relating it to some other something, because your question, I believe, included a lot of people might think it was government overreach. And you're right. It was. They did say, I can smoke. But what we figured out and what messaging became clearer and clearer was smoking is a choice, but breathing is not. And I should have the same access to this public restaurant and bar as you have, but I I can't now. And as a person with asthma, the truth was I really couldn't. It's not why I did it, because I hadn't been diagnosed at the time. But the thing we really tied it to that got them over it was, okay, so we're for protecting the public's health. And we're already telling restaurants and bars what they can and can't do. Like when we require food inspection, um, you know, you can't just go buy lettuce anywhere and just serve it until it's all gone. There are protocols and requirements to, because you are feeding the public, you are serving the public. And so we have a right to protect the public's health. And we do that every day at every restaurant. We do it at gas stations to make sure that there are serviceable tanks. I mean, all of those things are the way that government isn't overreaching. It's doing its job. It is trying to protect the public in the best way it can while honoring, you know, individual choice and freedom of choice. And so you can go outside if you want to smoke. And they do. People do. And we just hadn't looked back and nobody questions it. And everybody's happy. It took a while, but everybody's happy. So Tina Ward-Pierre, you were elected to the Louisville City Council from District 9 in 2003. You served on the Metro Council until 2015. What did the Metro Council accomplish during your tenure? And just give us the, the major points here besides the smoking ban and the fairness ordinance. Those do, of course, come to mind. I'm, one of my proudest uh, accomplishments was helping create the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And my predecessor, Councilman Bill Hollander, has taken that and and has moved it to the next level because he, too, had been engaged in for a long time trying to create more safe, decent, and affordable housing. We lobbied for $10 million the first year that it came into being. We didn't get that. We got $1 million, I think, maybe for a few years. And then after it was established and the board was beefed up, the trust fund board, and then Councilman Hollander came in, I believe that that 
you know, to the tune of 10 million or some something upwards uh, towards that is what is there. And as it turns out, sorely needed. You just only have to listen to the MHC report to know we're 32,000 affordable housing units short right now. So I was proud of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Um, I was also proud of working across the aisle and uh, leading the, the work of ethics reform. Part of what we did when we merged governments, we had five years to to bring together, to readopt all of the more than 5,000 pieces of legislation that were in conflict from the old county and the old city. For example, in the city, you can't have chickens or whatever living on your property. You couldn't have animals living in your neighborhood. But in the county, you could. (laughs) And so, you know, it was tough. I mean, we were having to resolve all of these conflicts and we had to take into account, you really can't if you live in Crescent Hill or the Highlands or Hikes Point (laughs) or Shawnee horses or whatever in your postage stamp backyard, but you could in the county. So among those, we had to solve the conflicting ethics ordinances. And I just had broad, both Democrat and Republican support for doing that. And so I was glad that we got that done because there, you know, the world was changing. The world changed radically from the last time it had been updated. I mean, even if nothing for nothing else, just technology had shifted so radically in the 90s, you know, we needed a more updated and current ethics ordinance and reporting. And so I was really proud of that. And I know some people may think this is kind of trivial, but I don't. I'll just tell you, because I have always been about advancing the status of women, expanding opportunities for women. It was very early when I was elected to the Board of Aldermen that, I mean, four years into that, I insisted on being called being called an alder woman. And some of my colleagues didn't understand it and didn't do it, even when they addressed me. And, you know, I, I would remind them, but, you know, it's what it was. And he even had an older woman who, who didn't want to be called an older woman. She wanted an older man because that was the only word that had ever been defined like that. And so it's funny, but that made it into Tom Owen's uh, History of Louisville book that that got changed. But what I'm proud about about that, too, is, is that during those four years on the Board of Aldermen and then we merged, it was never a question that there were going to be councilmen and council women. And so it's kind of like, oh my gosh, that evolution happened because I insisted on being recognized as a woman. And so one of the things we tried to do too was just to make it gender neutral. Let's just be called counselors. Let's just be called metro counselors. And that way there's no gender at all. And I imagine that's where we're heading you know, as people are, are going to not fit in those traditional things as well. So, and, and then the last thing was because as we were doing those 5,000 ordinances that had to be re- uh, resolved in the first five years, every time one would come before us, the law team who were drafting all of these revisions for us, it, it always had masculine language. So every time at every meeting, Wherever we were, I would was always had amendments. And on this page, go down to line 14, you said the mayor, he, it should be the mayor, comma, either they, the mayor, they, or the mayor, he, slash, she. But everywhere in this ordinance, I need you to make it inclusive. 
And so it's funny because after a certain amount of time, it took several years, but after a certain amount of time, they don't send anything over anymore that's not either gender neutral or gender inclusive. And I just think that's so important because for little girls, especially, you can't be what you can't see. And this begins to chip away at that barrier. Tina Warpew, you are now running for county clerk here in Jefferson County. A county clerk keeps records relating to county population, such as birth, marriage, and death certificates. This may include issuing license and permits, handling telephone inquiries, and serving customers, assisting in maintaining records of notary bonds, births, deaths, assumed names, gun licenses, and co-partnerships. County clerk also keeps records of all governing body transactions, resolutions, and ordinance. The county clerk assists with the administration of elections and collects election data. The legal records division collects delinquent real estate taxes and assists the public in retrieving, researching, copying, and viewing legal documents such as business names, corporations, deeds, mortgages, executive orders, name changes, wills, liens, releases, the county clerk uh, records and indexes all legal real estate documents, including but not limited to powers of attorney, assessments and releases. The county clerk issues special police registration, regulates medical license, transcends merchant permits, and going out of business license. The county clerk registers or renews vehicles yearly through the motor vehicle division. It issues decals and plates, collects taxes on all Jefferson County motor vehicles, including motorboats. Additionally, the county clerk has permits and temporarily disabled parking permits and files liens on titled collateral. Here in Jefferson County, the county clerk oversees eight motor vehicle branches. First, have I missed anything? And second, this seems like a daunting task. Does the county clerk have the staff and the revenue necessary to accomplish all these tasks accurately and efficiently? It's a big office with lots of really big uh, responsibilities and a, a lot of what what's now called adulting processes, which is apparently the, the younger generation's way of saying, you know, all those things you, you got to do when you're an adult. So a lot of adulting processes. And it's true. There are upwards of 300 employees at any given time. Of course, the revenue is generated through a number of ways, but primarily through tax collection on different levels, as well as permit, uh, the, you know, the filing of permits, those kinds of things. Um, I guess the the really, I would maybe kind of summarize, and I would say, yes, the, the county clerk's office, I think, is staffed to a degree to respond to the current clerk's priorities. And I believe that the revenue that's collected not only is there to, to do what's being done now, but also to improve on what's not being done now. So I don't foresee any kind of tax increase in any way. And But what I do know is things that I would tell you that are that really are on people's minds about the office is is it's where you go of course to get your your tags renewed for your vehicle you you get your tags for your boat your RVs you get your marriage licenses and it's over the deed room. People are familiar with the deed room where only the records back to 1984 have been digitized. I want to change that, by the way. And so you get your handicap 
parking sticker from the clerk, the clerk's office. And so it is no question. It's a big office and lots of responsibilities, but I think that it's got room for improvement. And so what I like to say at this point is that the things that people really talk to me a lot about have to do with the board of elections. From my perspective, that is the primary, the most important aspect of the clerk's office because it protects and I hope defends and advocates for protecting our precious, most fundamental right, and that's the right to vote. And so while there there's room for improvement in those areas, like I said, I've got a plan to digitize records, whether it's a decade at a time. I think we need to go start with the 70s to 1983, and then we need to do the decade of the 60s and the 50s and the 40s. And I think that none of it's going to be easy, and it's going to take a while to do those things, but I think that there should be a plan to get those things done. The other thing that, again, that I think is important is I believe that the technology that is used in this office is woefully inadequate. It's my understanding from some folks who work there that that even Windows 2003, <laughs> Windows 2003 is on some of the, the computers, and there may not be a direct line to the Secretary of State's office for actually being able to to give us up to the minute voting results election night. And I hope to change that as well. So I think that we have, you know, we have the staff and I also think we have the revenue because uh, on average for the last quarter century, on average, the clerk has given back at the end of her term upwards, uh, sometimes on average, of around $2 million. And over a four-year period, that's, of course, $500,000 a year she's not spending. And so what I know is, is people have left that office because there's never any real work or advocacy to give employees raises to ensure that they want to stay. And so I want to use some of that money to do those things. I, I want to have in place a plan to to pay, have regular pay increases based on the job and the experience. And well, I'm not so sure we shouldn't explore, you know, unionizing the clerk's office. If there are people who want to pursue that, I'm for it. I'm, I'm for it. You know, the last thing is, is the clerk really doesn't focus on the board of election. She only focuses, I think, on what is minimally required, taking out an ad in the Courier Journal to tell everybody what, what about voting, not taking advantage of we got our postcard in the mail this past May, and it didn't even have the early voting days on it. And, you know, I just think that that's unacceptable. And I know you got to get information out there, but I plan on using every medium available to do that. That's including emailing you, texting you, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, neighborhood newsletters, all of those things I plan on using to inform the public. Because right now, all of us have the same right, but we don't all have the same access to exercise those rights, and I want to change that. Bobby Hills Klopp has been county clerk in Jefferson County for some 23 years, first elected in November 1998. She's now the incumbent candidate. I don't remember, and I could be wrong here, uh, any controversy surrounding the county clerk's office during those 23 years. So hasn't the county clerk's office run pretty smoothly during Bobby Hills Klopp's tenure? Well, of course. I mean, I would say yes, and and I say yes when I'm out on the on the campaign trail too, because I give her credit for the improvements she's made. And after all, after a quarter century, she should have made some improvements. What she has chosen to focus 
focus on uh, during her tenure are, are vehicles. And so that's what everybody knows. Apparently, you, you used to have to take off work a, a whole day just to renew your, your tags for your vehicle. And she's changed that. And she's had plenty of time to do that. What she hasn't done is she hasn't been an advocate for the Board of Elections in expanding opportunities to educate the public about voting and about the importance of voting. Rather than shutting down polls because you can't find poll workers, I think we ought to find a way. And I, I you know, I have some ideas and, and I think they're going to work about creating a, a robust poll worker service score. So, I mean, the only, you know, the only controversy, you know, in general, not providing, I mean, currently there's a, a, um, a suit about her not providing uh, ex, uh, accessible access or total accessibility to, to all of the voting locations. I just think that's unthinkable and think we can use some of that $500,000 she turns back in on average every year to improve some of those things. I don't have bad things to say about her and no controversy. I just know that she's not focusing on the thing that's broken and that needs attention and I'm going to. Okay, fair enough. The county clerk oversees election, as you pointed out, certifies elections in Jefferson County and turns those election results into the Kentucky Secretary of State. An article published by Brennan Center for Justice titled, quote, Voting Laws Roundup, May 2022, explains that under the guise that there is voter fraud here in Kentucky, that, quote, Kentucky is one of six states that have enacted non-election interference laws. Interference laws permit partisan actors to interfere with election operations or overturn election results, direct new resources toward prosecuting election crimes, and threaten election officials with criminal penalties, end quote. First, could these new interference laws threaten legitimate election results, overturn elections even though little or no fraud is found, force unnecessary recounts that cost the taxpayer thousands of dollars, or discourage folks from becoming election officials? Sure. I mean, certainly there are too many things to say to take up all of this next whole weekend to respond to that because absolutely there are no question that there are new laws put in place that more than ever allow all the things that you just mentioned. And this is where it's true when election officials get threatened with criminal penalties or people you need to work in the polling locations decide they're not going to do it because of this, you know, because of all of that, because they're being threatened, as we are regretfully watching happen in front of us, uh, you know, in all the the hearings that are going on, there have to be people that, that ensure that these things don't occur. And, you know, as the county clerk, it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be my focus every day to find ways that minimizes all of these things, that minimizes the opportunity for some someone to interfere with an election, Democrat or Republican, by the way. I'm, I'm not just talking about the opposite party here. I'm just saying in general, if there are severe or strict things in the laws, then we're going to have to figure out how to be creative to follow that law, but accomplish still getting people more access to vote. And I, if, if it means uh, figuring out how to lobby to pay more poll workers to take off and work, if it means working with 
with the General Assembly to talk about other ways, if it means having electronic surveillance at polling locations, whatever it means, we're going to be focused on ensuring that it that they're free and they're fair and that not just anybody can come in and interfere. And quite frankly, I don't think that's happening now. I do not think that that is happening in Jefferson County. And I have no idea if it's happening around the state. I expect that it's not happening around the state because our Republican Secretary of State is doing a very good job. He's advocating for more opportunities to vote. And he's also responded to Republican and Democrat, but mainly Republican suit to, you know, claim them as frivolous because there's there's no demonstration uh, of crimes. And so I'm confident that it's not happening here. What I am concerned about is, is that some of this doesn't actually happen in front of us. What happens is it, it suppresses people's desire to vote and it suppresses their desire to serve as a a worker, a poll worker, because of the fear of all of these, you know, threatened lawsuits and threatened for fines and those kind of things, when in fact it could, it could just be a human error or an innocent mistake, just why I'm for fair curing of, of those kinds of things. For me, I want my county clerk to stand up and say, I am against any legislation that suppresses the vote. I think that in Georgia, when the Republicans passed a law that said you can't give water, a bottle of water for people who are standing in line to vote, I need my county clerk to stand up at a press conference and say that will never happen in Jefferson County. And I'll make sure that the state legislature hears me clearly. And I'm going to get all these other state county clerks together. And we're going to say, do not pass a law that says people can't get water in line because that keeps some people from coming to vote. And that's especially the elderly, and that's especially the people who have different abilities, who might be in can't stand, and it just unfairly penalizes someone. There are ways to solve those kinds of things, and I just don't hear our clerk saying anything about any of that. Okay, so Keenan Warpu, Dave Prickliosco, Vice President of the Kentucky League of Women Voters, a bipartisan organization. Stated on our program, Solutions to Balance, Kentucky State Legislature has gerrymandered political districts in order to help Republicans get elected or reelected. The League of Women Voters are calling for a citizen's review board that could make suggestions as to how district lines should be drawn. First, do you support a citizen's review board proposed to suggest to legislatures as to how political districts should be drawn? And second, how would you as a Jefferson County clerk impact the decision to establish a citizen review board? Well, those are some great questions. I have been, I know and have worked with Dee for many years now. I am an active member of the League of Women Voters because I know when women got the right to vote in 1920, it changed the path of history, especially for women at the time and eventually all women, including black women, black and brown women, people of color. And and so, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely for a citizen review board that makes recommendations to and testifies before the legislators who draw districts. And I, I want to be clear here. I, I agree with her entirely and, and the League of Women Voters across the state that 
legislative districts are gerrymandered, no question about it. And to do an asterisk here and say, and it was gerrymandered when the Democrats were in power, okay? We had a fine Republican, upstanding, moderate Republican woman, Susan Stokes, in the House of Representatives. And sure enough, in 1990, when we got the chance to redistrict, we we cut her completely out of her district because we wanted to get rid of her. And it was wrong then, uh, just like it's wrong now. And so there's equal opportunity blame here for, for all the parties involved. What I know, though, is people trust the League of Women Voters. People trust the National Council for Jewish, of Jewish Women, the National Council of Negro Women, Metro United Way. They, there are plenty of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, plenty of organizations who have people who are both Republicans, Democrats, who would be stellar in providing that kind of feedback, not just waiting until it's time to do it, but beginning the process before the actual census is done in order to to at least begin to figure out how these should should be different. You know, they can be tweaked once you have the final numbers there and then be public about it. So the clerk's office will do whatever it can. I will be a champion for that. Now, that doesn't mean that that being a champion is going to get it done. But what it means is, is I'm not I'm not just going to sit behind my desk and and just let the League of Women Voters or anybody else get that done. I, I'm going to be standing with them and saying this has to be done. And I will work with them just to, to work hard to get it done, both locally through our resolution or ordinance process that, of course, I'm familiar with, and through, hopefully, the, the other county clerks, the other 119 county clerks, and, and proposing it to the General Assembly, both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, we have to get away from letting legislators draw their own lines. We have to. So Tina Warpu, you are running against the, the incumbent, Bobby Hellsclaw, for Jefferson County Clerk. What kind of changes do you expect to make within the county clerk's office and why would you make a better county clerk than Bobby Hellsclaw? Well, that is the million dollar question or scratch your marks, the $64,000 question or $100,000 question. And, you know, this is this is what I have to say. I did not think I would ever run for office again, serving 16 years in elective office and then three years as director in Metro Louisville for the Office for Women. It is always time after a certain amount of time to move over and let other folks come in and serve there. I didn't think I'd ever run again. But but what happened was in November of 2016, the Democrats lost the election and we spent four years just in turmoil around our country and it has left our democracy vulnerable and under attack. And two and a half years ago, um, we began to actually see the consequences of that. And since that time around the country, 36 to 40 state legislatures have all enacted horrible, restrictive voter, you know, voter suppression laws. And we are one of those states. So let me just be clear. It's going to take a while to change this and to write the ship here that we don't want to sink. But some of the things that I think 
we should be doing when laws are passed in Frankfurt that feel restrictive and I'm against them or want to speak against them, I'm going to be speaking against them in Frankfurt and to the Jefferson County delegation, Republicans, Democrats, whoever, about them. For example, the law um, reads, as I understand it, that we're required to have voting polls open for a minimum of 12 hours. Well, so what about the second and third shift workers who never get to vote because when they get off work at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. in the morning, they're either going to go home and stay up long enough to get their kids ready to catch the bus, or they're gonna, just going to go ahead and crash because they got to get up that night and go back into that second and third shift. And so they're going to sleep through those 12 hours to vote. And so how about some of the early voting days that we, we have a east end, a west end, and a south end 24-hour polling location for those first three early voting dates, which by the way, I'm for. I'm, I'm I'm for everything Michael Adams is proposing now. I was there. I'm for everything he proposed two years ago during the pandemic. We ought to have early voting three weeks. We ought to have no excuse. You ought to be able to mail in your ballot. You ought to be able to drop off your ballot. You ought to have every chance you get to vote. We ought to open more polling locations in the West End and the South End. We ought to have free rides to the polls via TARC and public transit. We need to be working with Uber and Lyft and taxis and all of our transportation systems to provide access for people to go vote. We have voting machines for the visually impaired, primarily in District 9, begin to invest in those and have those in other places as well. Because, I mean, there are states that have completely transitioned over to every device or every voting machine being an accessible, uh, totally accessible machine within the law. I want to take, if we just stay with 12 hours, how about let's try nine to nine? If you don't want to give me help to get second and third shift workers back to vote, well, will you give me help and let's just all 120 counties go from nine to nine? Because that would maybe catch some of them to do that. The biggest idea, which I'm not the first to have it, there are places that do have this, but I just have to tell you, I just am just so concerned about happening at our jail. I know that there are on any day upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 people incarcerated and the vast majority of them don't have the money for bail. So what that means is is if you're poor or low income and you get arrested and you still haven't even been arraigned yet or, or charged with anything, you're stuck in jail because you don't have $50 cash or $100 cash to get out. And I think that that is unfair and abomination. And I'm going to work to change that with those other organizations, what I'm hoping to do for those 1,500 to 2,000 people who all have, if they're registered to vote, have a right to vote. They just are in a place where they can't get out and go vote. And so two things. One, I'm going to work with the League of of Women Voters, who already does a fabulous job of registering voters. So I'm going to work with the League of Women Voters and NCJW, the NCNW, and anybody else who wants to register people who are in jail. If there's a safe way to do it, and if there's an appropriate way to do it, that's what we're going to do. The other thing we're going to do is I'm going to work to create or have a polling location 
in the jail. Now, it could be one of those three early voting days where we go in and that happens, or it could be one whole day of a 24-hour day to do that. Then I guess then the last thing would be, I'm going to be a county clerk who stands up and speaks up. I'm going to push back. You know, you're going to know where I stand. You're you're going to know. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit back and wait for Frankfurt to tell me what to do. I'm going to be advocating what we should be doing and pushing for what we should be doing and leading the way for what we should be doing. And, you know, where there are organizations that we need to partner with to accomplish some of these things, I, I am open. I am proud that I was a strong bipartisan leader while I was uh, in on Metro Council. And I plan to be nonpartisan in the role as county clerk. Clearly, I'm a Democrat and clearly I have a different perspective from in, the incumbent does. But the truth of the matter is, is that I will be expected to be and I will be nonpartisan. And it will be my goal for my all of my employees that no one, no one will ever look up anybody's voter registration on my clock. And especially me, I won't look it up because it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. Our conversation today has been with Tina Warpu. Tina, we appreciate you joining us today as we explore with our listeners more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with our listeners here on WFMP Radio. At this time, we'd like to invite Bobby Hosclaw or anyone else who may be running for Jefferson County Clerk to appear as our guest on Solutions of Balance. If you're interested in appearing on Solutions of Balance Radio, just visit us at solutionsofbalance18.gmail.com. We'd be happy to put you on our program. You can listen to Solutions of Balance live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choose Listen Live Now. We air Solutions of Balance on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions of Balance program that features Tina Ward, who We'll air again September 13th and 14th. The program featuring Tina Ward Pugh will be placed in our archives September 14th, 2022. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Balance program that features Tina Ward Pugh. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Tina Ward Pugh, you can reach us with the following email, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. With Jamie McMillan, our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson, wishing you and yours safety and wellness, peace in these challenging COVID times. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.